This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. My name's Katie Wiskar, and I'm your host from today. I'm a fellow in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Kate Schultz, who is a newly minted general internist practicing in the greater Vancouver area. So Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Katie. All right. So without further ado, we're going to dive into the article that you're covering today. And I admit that when I first read the article, I immediately thought of you because it <laughs> covers a topic that's very close to both of our hearts. So why don't you tell me about the paper that you're going to be speaking about today? That's right. I was very thrilled to read this paper. And so I want to discuss this trial, which examined the association between cardiorespiratory fitness and patients undergoing exercise treadmill testing and all-cause mortality. It was published in JAMA Open Network, October 2018, and the principal investigator was Man Sanger. So I'm already interested because I love exercise, as do you. So tell me, what was the bottom line for this article? Yeah, so this was a retrospective cohort study. Examined over 100,000 patients who were referred for symptom-limited exercise treadmill testing. And it found that all-cause mortality was inversely proportional to cardiorespiratory fitness, and specifically lowest for those elite performers. So this sounds like very good news for exercise nuts like you and I who love our triathlons and marathons and all kinds of things. So why don't you tell me a bit about sort of the broader context and why you think this article is important to discuss. Mm -hmm. So there's a few important points in why I like this article. First of all, we all know that the improved cardiorespiratory fitness is linked to better health. But recently, there's actually been some contradictory evidence about intensive or excessive exercise. Some findings have suggested a U-shaped relationship between mortality and exercise duration and intensity, bringing into question whether it's necessarily true that the more exercise, the better. Hmm. I know I've read things like that about maybe an increased risk of atrial fibrillation or cardiac remodeling that's not stopped me from doing anything, but sort of made me question things a bit. Exactly. I like to disregard them, but <laughs> for the most part, but this study has really brought all of those kind of into question, and we'll talk about that a bit later. Secondly, though, I really like this study because as a general internist, I do a ton of exercise trust tests. And we all know an exercise stress test can tell us a lot of information other than just evidence suggesting obstructive coronary artery disease. In my training, I was always taught that the strongest prognostic variable is exercise duration or their functional classification. And so I really like this trial because it provides a good quality evidence to support that theory. All right, I totally agree. And I'm intrigued to see sort of what we'll find as we unpack this trial. So let's get right into it. So tell me first, where did the study take place and what was its design? Yeah, so it was a retrospective cohort study and it looked at data collected over 24 years from a single center in the USA. So the patients they looked at were adult patients who were undergoing exercise stress testing with the most common indication being evaluation for obstructive coronary artery disease. Mm. Yeah, and that's a key point that you bring up here, and that this wasn't all comers. These were patients who were, for a clinical indication, whatever that was, referred for a treadmill test. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. So on average, these were 50-year-old patients. They were a slightly higher proportion of males, and their mean BMI was actually overweight, so BMI of 28. About 15% of these patients had coronary artery disease already established. 50% mm -hmm. had hypertension, 25% dyslipidemia, 10% diabetes. Interestingly, almost 50% of these patients were either current or prior smokers, 
which is higher than I would say I usually see in Vancouver. Yeah, that's a biased West Coast population. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and about one third of these patients were on aspirin and a quarter were on beta blockers or statins. Okay, so a fairly high risk population, not unexpected given that they were referred for a clinical indication. And what was the intervention then or the exposure that they looked at, I guess, given that this was an observational study? Yeah, so the only thing they excluded were anyone who had to undergo a pharmacologic stress testing or had to be converted to pharmacologic stress testing because of the inability to reach 85% of their max heart rate. And this would make sense because the study is about exercise duration and not really whether the patient showed evidence of ischemia. Okay, fair enough. So given this was an observational study, tell me about the exposure that they looked at. Yeah, so they were examining cardiorespiratory fitness. So this was quantified as peak METs or metabolic equivalents that were achieved on a symptom-limited exercise stress test. And then they identified which percentile each patient fell into based on their cardiorespiratory fitness. So low, less than 25th percentile versus high or extremely high elite over 98th percentile. Okay, so I think I understand the setup of what they were examining here. So then what was the primary outcome that they looked at? Yeah, so primary outcome was all-cause mortality as determined by a death registry. All right, that's pretty straightforward and pretty unbiased. Yeah, I would just like to point out those. So obviously one would suspect there is a big difference in cardiovascular risk factors and medications between these fitness groups, right? So the low performers below that 25th percentile probably have more comorbidities and are on more medications than those elite performers. Mm -hmm. And so they did adjust for these differences in baseline characteristics, and they performed a regression model to construct a risk-adjusted association between mortality and cardiorespiratory fitness. So that's some fancy statistics, and neither you nor I are statistics people, but I think that that's a really key point that you bring up, given that obviously there's going to be comorbidities and other things that influence the results here. So that's good to know that they controlled for that. Exactly. All right. I think we set the table. So tell me now, what did they actually find? All right. So the primary finding was that out of the 100,000 patients, actually 13,000 died during the median follow-up of eight years. Wow. And for an unadjusted survival, so that survival when they haven't controlled for all the comorbidities mm. and medications, they found, as expected, the higher the heart, cardiorespiratory fitness, the better you did, the less mortality you had. 24% okay. of people in the low performance group that below the 25th percentile died versus 3% in the elite group. But what was very interesting is when they did that regression model, they found that all-cause mortality was associated with performance. Adjusted hazard ratios for low versus elite performers were estimated at about five. So that's a five times higher risk of death in the low performer group compared to the elite. And even when comparing performers that didn't differ that much, so below average performers versus above average performers, so that 25th to 50 percentile versus the 50 to 75th percentile, there was still an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.4. And that was statistically significant. The confidence interval didn't cross one. So some pretty major differences, and it seemed like in looking at their graphs, that relationship was maintained sort of across all of the percentiles, even some differences right up at the very extremes of exercise. Mm -hmm. And I just, I kind of want to put this into context because they actually examined the hazard ratios for common cardiovascular risk factors, such as smoking or diabetes. 
and they identified hazard ratios in the range of about 1.4. So this is suggesting that the cardiorespiratory fitness variable is actually comparable, if not greater, to the traditional risk factors that we all know and address. Interesting, and I don't know about you, but for me, it's if I'm evaluating a patient for ACS who comes in with chest pain, it's not something that I necessarily ask them or put a lot of weight in the same way I would a history of diabetes or a family history of heart disease, those kinds of things. So that's really interesting to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Are there any particular points that you wanna make about this study? Yes, there are a few interesting points that I took away. So first of all, the adjusted mortality risk of reduced performance on exercise stress tests was comparable, if not greater, than traditional clinical risk factors that we examine every day. So I think I'm going to be paying more attention to that functional status, the cardiorespiratory fitness, um, that my patients achieve on an exercise stress test as a prognostic variable that I can possibly modify. Second of all, I also found this article very interesting in that there is no upper limit of benefit with increased aerobic fitness. So elite performers did no worse than people with above average cardiorespiratory fitness. And we did see that they did much better than the lower performers. Yeah, so I found that very interesting and reassuring, certainly as someone who exercises a lot. Not to say that I think that given that this was an observational study, that it dispels what may be a, you know, an increased risk of atrial fibrillation or cardiac remodeling. I don't think those questions are answered by this study, given its observational nature and given that it just looked at that very big picture endpoint of mortality. But I feel a little bit more reassured, you know, as I sign up for my next marathon or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And I would like to point out that those previous studies, the ones that looked at the U-shaped relationship, like they were actually more looking at vigorous, intensive exercise, while this study was looking at how well you did on an exercise stress mm. test. So while one would assume that doing intensive exercise with long duration will probably lead you to a better exercise stress test, they weren't necessarily looking at the same thing. So right. I don't know if we can totally ignore the previous studies because yeah. they are different. No, that's a very good point. And the other thing that certainly caught my eye, I don't know if you found this as well, but I did wonder in reading this and in thinking of all the patients who I see who get exercise stress tests, whether really cardiorespiratory fitness in this study is just acting as a marker of frailty. And what we're really seeing is that because that effect was, you know, particularly pronounced in older patients, what we're really seeing is just that less frail people who are, you know, in that upper few percentile for their age group have lower mortality. And that would not be surprising given all the, you know, risks we know they're associated with frailty. So I do wonder whether we're seeing exercises maybe just sort of a surrogate for overall functional status. Absolutely. I think it's acting as a surrogate for multiple things that affect our mortality. So I completely agree with that. All right. Now, are there any significant limitations that you want to discuss? Yeah. So it's the usual caveat about this study design and that it's retrospective cohort study. So conclusions drawn from this aren't going to be as robust as a prospective study or a randomized controlled trial. And we have to remember that this study only suggests an association and there are several unmeasured factors that we can't adjust for. Yeah. And as well, with regards to just generalizability, as you mentioned at the beginning, this was a population of patients 
with suspected coronary artery disease who were referred for exercise stress tests. So I don't think we can simply extrapolate these results to a different population mm -hmm. or a low risk population and say that the more METs you achieve on an exercise stress test, the longer you'll live. Right. So I can't go off and say to my husband that he should go run for three hours every night because that means he'll live longer. Well, you can probably still like say that, that but <laughs> <laughs> not based on this study. <laughs> Got it. Noted. Uh, all right. So why don't we wrap up? Can you summarize the main learning point from the study? So in this retrospective cohort study, metabolic equivalence calculated in the study as cardiorespiratory fitness is a strong modifiable indicator of long-term mortality. And we should consider this alongside traditional risk factors when calculating a patient's risk. All right, and how is this gonna change your practice as someone who's newly practicing as a general internist seeing patients both in the hospital and in the outpatient clinic? So honestly, I think I'll put more emphasis on those metabolic equivalents achieved during the exercise stress test my patients do. So when I review an exercise stress test with patients, I often find most are just so relieved and happy to hear that it was negative for ischemia. Mm. But I definitely think I'll be emphasizing their cardiorespiratory fitness on the test and using that to discuss risk factors and the fact that it's a large prognostic variable that we can potentially modify. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, you know, this will encourage some patients to work towards achieving higher levels of cardiorespiratory fitness. Yeah, and obviously we can't draw the conclusion that, you know, by encouraging someone to be more fit, they will therefore live longer. But I certainly don't think that this study hurts in terms of ammunition to counsel our patients with regards to exercise and fitness through all stages of life. Absolutely. I really do think this study just reaffirms what most of us already believe, that the patients generally have better prognosis the fitter they are, and specifically the further they're able to go on an exercise stress test. Totally. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kate. That was fascinating. So let's move on to the article that I chose to talk about this week. So I'm talking today about the VITAL trial. So this was two papers actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November of 2018 about vitamin D supplementation and omega-3 fatty acids and the prevention of cancer and cardiovascular disease. So similar to last time I presented the Esprit trial where we had three papers covered in one short podcast, uh, we're talking about two different papers this time sort of published as sister articles in NEDGEM. And the first author here was Joanne Manson. So what's the bottom line of these articles, Katie? Okay, so the bottom line here is that in this large nationwide double-blinded placebo-controlled RCT of over 25,000 patients, supplementation with omega-3 fatty acids or vitamin D in a primary prevention cohort did not lead to a statistically significant reduction in the incidence of invasive cancer or of major cardiovascular disease. Hmm, very interesting given how many times patients ask me about vitamin D and omega-3s for their health. So why did you choose these articles? Well, I think that's the point exactly. So maybe it's a particular West Coast thing, but I feel like everybody and their dog are on various supplementations for all kinds of things. And the supplement industry, as we know, is a multi-billion dollar industry. But despite that, there's often not a lot of good evidence supporting the scientific claims uh, for many of these products. So in this study, they actually looked at two sort of common supplementations. So vitamin D, we know is good for bone health and osteoporosis, and that is not being debated. But there has been some observational data and sort of basic science data suggesting a possible benefit in terms of both cardiovascular disease and cancer, particularly in patients living in more northern climates. So 
Canada, uh, who get less vitamin D from sunlight. However, there is no good randomized controlled data addressing that subject. Likewise, in omega-3 fatty acids, there is a very sort of mixed bag at present of studies looking at primary or secondary prevention and the effects on, again, cancer and cardiovascular disease. And there's actually recommendations included in both the AHA and the CCS guidelines for omega-3 fatty acids in patients with coronary disease and heart failure, respectively, though that's not based on very good evidence. So this trial really sought to kind of answer those questions in a primary prevention population. Yeah, that sounds great. I definitely think these kind of trials, looking at preventative medicine, are great to see because there's such little focus on preventative medicine in our healthcare system. And I'm very excited to be covering this because I think as you mentioned, anytime this is in the media, patients will be asking you or talking about it. So knowing the evidence behind it is great. So let's get into things. So what were the methods of this trial? All right, so this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. So theoretically, the best kind of evidence. And it was sponsored by the National Institute of Health. Industry, I will say, did donate the vitamin D and omega-3 supplements, respectively, but had no other role in the trial. And it was a two-by-two factorial design. So kind of a clever little design that I'm sure you've seen before. When you're doing a trial of such large magnitude where there's so much organizational effort, it kind of makes sense to kill two birds with one stone if you can. So they looked at both vitamin D versus placebo as well as omega-3 fatty acids versus placebo. Great. So who are the patients that they studied? So the inclusion criteria for this was pretty broad. They looked at adults in the US, men over the age of 50 and women over the age of 55, without a history of cancers, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers, or cardiovascular disease. Really, that was about it. There was a few specific exclusions. So they excluded anyone with renal failure, cirrhosis, hypercalcemia, granulomatous diseases, things like that, where you can reason out that vitamin D supplementation would maybe be harmful. And they actually recruited participants through mailed information sheets, as well as by placing ads in lifestyle magazines. So kind of an interesting recruitment mm. model. But given that this was all sort of outpatient and questionnaire based, sort of made sense. Interesting. And what interventions were they examining? So as we said there, this was a two by two design. So they looked at both vitamin D versus placebo. And for that arm, one group got vitamin D3 at a dose of 2000 international units a day and the other group got a matched placebo, and then omega-3 fatty acids versus placebo. And there it was one gram per day of omega-3 fatty acids. And then the outcome they looked at? So their primary outcomes, so they had two primary outcomes, kind of dual outcomes. So we end up with sort of four questions that we're answering if you think about the vitamin D group for each of the two dual primary outcomes. So their first was invasive cancer of any kind. And this was basically any new cancer diagnosis and had to be confirmed with cytological or histological findings. And the other one was a major cardiovascular event. And they defined that as an MI, stroke, or death from cardiovascular causes. There were also a few secondary outcomes that they looked at, of course. They, for the cancer endpoint, they broke down several individual cancers as well as looked at cancer death. And for cardiovascular disease, they looked at the individual components of the primary outcome again, as well as coronary revascularization. All right, so a group of patients without cardiovascular disease who are either randomized to omega-3s or vitamin D with the outcome of either cancer or cardiovascular disease? Just to clarify, so they were randomized to vitamin D or placebo, and then omega-3s and placebo. So you could have a patient getting both 
active treatment, so vitamin D and omega-3s, or likewise you could have a patient getting double placebo in that two by two table. Right, so there are four different options. Yes, and then just in terms of how they actually assess their outcomes, so they measured this by questionnaires that they sent out to the, to the patients at six months, a year, and then annually. So it was all self-reported, but to the researchers' you know, credit, because this is quite the undertaking, anyone who reported an event then had their medical records assessed by one of the study investigators to verify the accuracy of that event. And they followed these people for an average of just over five years. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about these patients. Were these patients that we'd see in the GIM clinic? Well, I think so, though they may actually be a bit too healthy to be in a GIM clinic. So the population they looked at were just over 25,000 adults with a mean age of 67. They were fairly well balanced for comorbidities, but overall quite healthy. It was a mostly Caucasian population, but there was a reasonable balance of other ethnicities as well. And as I said, these were patients free from cardiovascular disease, as well as from any history of cancer. All right, so it does sound like a pretty healthy population. What were the main findings of this study? All right, so as I say, we're going to talk about sort of four different primary outcomes, given that we had two dual primary outcomes and two treatments that we were assessing. So for invasive cancer, in the vitamin D group, there was no difference for vitamin D versus placebo, though they did note that they saw a lower cancer mortality in the group that received vitamin D. However, I'll say that this was one of their secondary outcomes, and they note in their methods that they didn't make adjustments for multiple comparisons, and essentially any of their secondary outcomes or subgroup analyses should be considered hypothesis generating only. And I've talked about this on a previous podcast and sort of the complexity of the statistics are a bit beyond me, but I understand when they say that this should just be hypothesis generating, mm -hmm. we should be interested by this perhaps, but not put too much stock in it. So that was vitamin D and cancer. For cancer and omega-3 fatty acids, there was no difference. For cardiovascular events, for vitamin D, there was no difference. And for omega-3 fatty acids, again, overall, there was no difference. They did see a subgroup where there was some benefit for those with low fish consumption on self-reported questionnaire, as well as a subgroup, a secondary outcome, showing less myocardial infarction and less coronary revascularization for the omega-3 fatty acid group. So potentially a signal there in terms of coronary disease specifically. But again, hypothesis generating only. So it sounds very similar to many of the other primary prevention trials in that a lot of negative results, perhaps a few hypotheses. Exactly. And you know, I think that always these trials with negative results are still important to talk about. Uh, there's you know, well-known sort of publication bias for positive studies. So I think we can still get a lot of useful information out of this trial. Absolutely. And you know, I always give it to people who do primary prevention trials and that the trial size and the follow-up period has to be so much greater than in the secondary prevention trials. So these are a lot more difficult to do and get that sought after positive results. And I think these negative results are important to review, just like you said. So any interesting points or observations that came of this study? So I think overall, this study highlights the need to do these randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, because we've seen so many instances, even in my you know, relatively short career to date, where the observational data or the basic science data suggests one thing, and then the RCT is in opposition. So you know, for vitamin D, there had been a lot of observational data that supported vitamin D, and these results here don't really show any benefit. 
And they, they discuss that a bit sort of in the paper, in the discussion itself. Again, I'm not sure totally what to make of the omega-3 fatty acids and that potential benefit for coronary disease. As I said, the literature on that is quite mixed. And there's been some positive studies in the secondary prevention cohort, some negative. There is some biologic plausibility. So I think perhaps what will come of this trial is generation of future trials, perhaps to try to nail that in a bit more. What I'm particularly curious about is that subgroup didn't eat fish or ate less than that mm. 1.5 servings of mm. fish because there was that signal towards benefit. And so I'm curious about that population, if they perhaps would benefit from omega-3 mm. supplementation. I, I think this is us once again being self-interested <laughs> as two vegans who don't eat fish and wondering whether in addition to our excessive exercise, we should be consuming <laughs> omega-3 supplementation. So we will look out for that study in future. The other point I just want to make that stands with a lot of these big trials is just to always keep in mind the study population here. So this was a primary prevention cohort. For vitamin D particularly, it's important to say that this looked at cancer and cardiovascular health. This did not refute the benefits of vitamin D for bone health, osteoporosis, all that kind of thing. And I think sometimes when these types of studies get published in the lay press, some of those subtleties get a bit lost and people come in thinking that, you know, their vitamin D that they've been prescribed for their fragility fractures is not good for them. Um, so I think important to kind of keep those in mind. Mm -hmm. Were there any limitations in the study? Um, overall, I think it was a pretty well-conducted study. I will say that by the end of the trial, just over 10% of the placebo group was taking vitamin D in that sort of arm. And that was because they were prescribed it by a physician for a clinical indication. So I would imagine, though this is not discussed, things like fragility fractures, osteoporosis, perhaps low levels if it was monitored. So that may have swayed the result towards sort of the null hypothesis. And the other thing to say is that they do mention they did some blood work in some patients to sort of look at vitamin D levels at the initiation of the study and then in follow-up, but they didn't sort of do that conclusively across the board. So I think that you know, in your patient with who had very low vitamin D levels. I don't know if this, these results are applicable to them because we didn't have sort of consistent monitoring of levels throughout the trial. So can you summarize the main points of this study? All right, so this was a well-conducted two-by-two randomized control trial that showed no benefit to vitamin D or omega-3 fatty acid supplementation for primary prevention of either cancer or cardiovascular disease. Great. So I think for me, obviously important to say, I will continue to prescribe and recommend vitamin D for bone health in patients in whom it's applicable. And I think for secondary prevention of coronary disease, uh, if you believe the latest guidelines, which have of course not incorporated these trial results, it's possible that you may still prescribe omega-3 fatty acids in sort of a secondary prevention population. Those groups aside, they're looking at the primary prevention population that was in this study. I think that based on these results, I won't be recommending this to my patients. If there are patients who are on these supplements and want to continue taking them, uh, certainly we have no evidence of harm from this study, I should say. There was no difference in adverse effects between the groups. And I will at least have some more evidence to have a reasonable discussion with them about the risks and benefits, or rather sort of the lack of established benefits for patients in their shoes. All right, so there's no need to promote omega-3s or vitamin D for the sole purpose of cardiovascular disease prevention and cancer prevention. Correct, as right. far as we know. All right, 
Well, thanks so much, Kate. So we're about to wrap up, but of course, before we do, it's time for the good stuff segment. So tell me what you've been reading about this week. I've been looking forward to this. So actually, my article I chose out of the Washington Post, which was titled, What the Tests Don't Show. And it was written by Daniel Morgan, who's a physician in the US. It actually discussed how modern medicine has come to rely on tests and scans, which we see every day, and how so many of these tests are so deeply imperfect. And it discussed how doctors often have a basic misunderstanding of probability and how accurate our tests that we rely so heavily upon are. Discussed a lot of different little studies looking at his colleagues and their failures to grasp false positives. And I just thought the article was a wonderful summary of how important it is to think critically about the tests and always have thoughtful Bayesian reasoning in our practices. I love it. And you know, you know, when I when I was chief, I would give noon rounds all the time, and that was always sort of a central theme in rounds. And I, I feel like a lot of the great clinical teachers I've had have really emphasized that point of understanding the concept of pre-test probability and a likelihood ratio and post-test probability, and how a positive test doesn't necessarily sway you one way or the other, depending on the rest of the clinical picture. So I look forward to giving that a read. All right, so for my good stuff this week, I actually have chosen a blog post written by a colleague of mine who is a general internal medicine fellow here at UBC and who is spending his fifth year doing some really fascinating work in electronic health records overseas, posting some very interesting things to his blog. And this particular post was a recap of the 2018 Exponential Medicine Conference, I guess, which is new to me, but for those of you who don't know, Exponential Medicine is a four-day gathering held every year that brings together sort of the brightest minds, the most innovative, creative people in the field of healthcare from around the world, discussing sort of new ways to tackle all these various problems in medicine. So he wrote sort of a recap and the top 50 highlights of this event which is sort of equal parts inspiring and terrifying to read when you read about sort of some of the things that may be coming down the pipeline. Uh, so we'll link to the blog post. And if you want to check out more, you can also go to the Exponential Medicine website itself and watch some of the videos from the event. But super fascinating stuff and a bit of a look into what may be the future of medicine. Yes, absolutely terrifying. That list is unbelievable discussing AI and a lot of stuff that I didn't understand, but um, a really good read and Greg's yeah. a very smart guy. So, yeah. which, and I, and I mean, it seems to be in such stark contrast when you read that and read what people are capable of and are thinking of doing. And then you go back to the hospital, like with your pager and have to answer <laughs> faxes and like, we're living 30 years ago. So at some point we will catch up. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me today, Kate. It was really lovely to have you here and I hope that you'll be back again soon. Well, thanks for having me, Katie. That was a lot of fun. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>